In 18th century China, a land steeped in tradition, superstition, and magic, one man was dedicated to documenting and preserving the strange and the unexplained. With fierce intellect and dark wit, he recorded bizarre accounts from across the land. From the elusive man-stealing Yeren to reanimated vampiric corpses known as Jiangxi, Ji Yun's writings illuminate a world where the line between the living and the dead was blurred, and the supernatural whispers from the shadows. Join us as we unroll his aging scrolls and scour his dusty tomes to present true tales of anomalous phenomena collected and cataloged by the Imperial Librarian of China's last dynasty. Conspiracy, synchronicity, Sasquatch, homunculus, alien races, Satanism in Hollywood, MK Ultra, Tartaria. There's like a whole. I've been watching this one guy. Like, Close the door, in. Jury, close your door. What's the uh, inner Earth disagreements? Ghost Dad. <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman, Bohemian Grove, magicians are demons, specters, and spirit summonings, strange disappearances, sky whale phenomena, yes. alternative history, shadow people. Shh, quiet. I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. Anunnaki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf towers. I would never talk about it. That's old. Y2K. Cover-ups. Apocalyptic catastrophe. Vampire. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Season five, episode one. Yes, we are back in the hole. <laughs> I'm Jeremy. I'm John. And I'm Chris. Yes, you are. And we are the brothers of the belief hole. And we are back for season five. Yes. We are happy to be back. Yeah. So glad to be back. Been a brief, brief break. Much needed. A lot of stuff done in the back end. And I'm really excited about the season. We have a lot of fun things planned. A lot of updates we're going to be making this season for members and listeners alike. So... Stay tuned. It's going to be it's going to be awesome. And a lot of wonderful weird tales we're getting into this season. And speaking of weird tales, let's just dive right in if you guys are ready into the magic and the strangeness. This episode is exciting because it is unique because it is some of the sorts of things that we've talked about on the show before, but with a fantastic historical twist. Yeah. Good. Why don't you take us into this? How would you describe it, Jeremy? This comes from this amazing book that actually Chris got me for Christmas. Thank you, Chris. Good gift. It's called The Shadow Book of Ji Yun. Fascinating. This book will be in the show notes, guys. You got to check this out. I'm sure you'll be interested after you hear this episode. It was edited and translated by Yi Izzy Yu and John Yu Branscombe. And they did a fantastic job. It's a r- ridiculous amount of information. How, bi- how big is that book? It's huge. It's probably uh, 9,000 pages. It's like the Bible. Or wait, no. 305. But... It's dense. Oh, it looks bigger. There's like over a hundred stories, true tales, true strange tales from 18th century China and earlier. Tell us about, because they compiled these stories, but who wrote these accounts down? Because these were recorded over 200 years ago. Yeah. They translated and edited and wrote a great introduction, kind of setting it up and applying context. But the book itself is a translation from Ji Yun. He was actually the imperial librarian to the last emperor of China from the Qing dynasty. End of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. And that was the last Chinese dynasty, right? 
Yes. What's interesting about this guy is that he kind of became essentially what, I guess, the parallel in modern culture, and they refer to this in the book even, it's the Chinese X-Files, essentially, is what he compiled. This database of bizarre, inexplicable accounts ranging from strange scientific phenomena to Fordian paranormal accounts, ghost stories, vampires. Vampires. We're going to be getting into succubus, hauntings, abductions by Yaren, which are like Bigfoot, sentient forests, and man-eating mists. All kinds of strange accounts. But the cool thing is they are all reportedly true and recorded by a respected philosopher, scholar, and librarian. That is Ji Yun. Yeah, his whole story is fascinating. His life story is really interesting. People in history didn't lie either, you know? No. Anybody that came before us all told the truth. (laughs) I think they're more likely to tell the truth than now. That's how I feel. That's what's cool about Ji Yun. I find him to be a kindred spirit of all of us here at the Belief Hole. Yeah. And probably a lot of our listeners because he was chiefly focused on the truth and getting to the truth. And we'll get to that. Really interesting kind of a parallel to our show here. Um, hey, give us a little background on him, Jer. Yeah, so Ji Yun, he was born in 1724. He lived to 1805. Uh, and as I said, he was a special advisor to the emperor of China. Eventually, he became this and the imperial librarian. Super respected, celebrated scholar, poet of his time. But when he was four years old, he already had kind of like the shine. Like this guy was going to be somebody, you know, super brilliant by the age of four, was reading way advanced, impressing his parents' dinner guests with his photographic memory and, you know, adult conversations, kind of a dark, clever wit and humor. An old soul. And he could apparently freestyle rhymes, which is also awesome. Uh, (laughs) Freestyle rhymes, nice. Could have been a rapper. Uh, So these were all like kind of signs that he was destined for greatness. And it looked like he was going to have a, high seat in the empire, some sort of high status position in the state, operating somehow at a higher level, just because of his intellect and his skill. He achieved that. But in his 40s, I believe in 1768, he made a terrible mistake. He apparently found out that one of his in-laws was going to be investigated. Their business was going to be investigated by, by the emperor, the administration. For bribery, I think, right? I'm not sure what it was for. It might have been bribery or something, but he basically- Bribery, I'm pretty sure may have been bribery. Regardless, his political rivals found out, and so they told the emperor that he had informed them ahead of time, and so he was banished. Banished to the outskirts of this province far, far away. Chris, do you know how to pronounce this province? Is it Urumqi? Um, He was banished to Urumqi. Urumqi in Xinjiang province. But it was far, far away from where he was used to. He lost his position. He was demoted to like a lowly grunt, essentially, an administrative grunt, I believe. So this was like a major shock for him, but it's kind of interesting because this allowed him to experience a different side of life, different kinds of people. Instead of the elite upper crust that he had been accustomed to, he was now surrounded by merchants, traders, I think some criminals. Common folk. Common folk. I think this area was a rebel province, I think, or maybe there might've been like a heavy rebel presence, rebel to the empire. Well, yeah, there were rebels exiled to the same area. Yeah. Into this um, Urumqi. Yeah. So anyways... While he's, his mind's being kind of messed up from this, his experience is totally changed and he's grappling with that. At the same time, these new influences are coming in. He's hearing stories from people, stories of the strange and bizarre. Experiences similar to things that he's experienced in his own life, but he's discounted because, well, he is a Confucianist. And Confucianism, it's kind of more material, from what I understand, less spiritual than previous belief systems in the country. So he's been taught this more kind of material-based but he's hearing these strange stories 
And this is really cool. This is a quote from the book at this point. It says, as a result, he began to reflect upon his own weird experiences and noted how certain themes, patterns, and categories of strangeness occurred repeatedly, as if providing hints about a hidden metaphysical order. Mm. Now that sounds kind of familiar, kind of like what we do in the show a little bit, putting the nodes of truth together. So after this, after he's kind of exposed to this and his mind's kind of changing and becoming more open to these things, in his own life even, strangely the emperor summons him back, reinstates him, and this time as the uh, imperial librarian, which is a crazy position. This was in 1771, and there was this massive undertaking that he was appointed for. He was to become the lead editor for the Siku Kuan Shu, which essentially is the compiling and categorization of over 12,000 works of Chinese literature. So this is like, you know, think of all of United States history for our context, right? And then add 8,000 years wow. of information and writings. Jeez, yeah. So all the previous dynasties and everything, he was collecting all these things and categorizing and editing. Exactly, put in charge of all of it. So having been uniquely acquainted with this entire library of China's literary history, he has a unique position here. And with his photographic memory, just, just imagine what he could do with that. And boy, does he do some stuff. The second task he was appointed for was less enjoyable for him. With any great power, this kind of thing happens. The destruction, the censorship of information. He was also tasked, besides this library project, this bibliograph project of categorizing and collecting all these things, he was tasked with heavily editing or outright destroying a lot of classical works, literary art. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. Because it didn't, you know, fit with the emperors. Didn't jive with the current paradigm. Right. It looked bad historically. They would refer to it as, well, in the book, refer to it as these were works that were politically problematic or intellectually heretical. So these works ended up being lost forever because he was made to destroy them. So this kind of, according to the book, it seemed to further his attitude towards the paradigm, if you will. And the paradigm at the time was Confucianism. It was this less spiritual, more material way of thinking. So that even further opened him up to this, this different belief system, or at least these strange stories that people were telling him. So this led him to write, maybe partly in a rebellious kind of fashion, five volumes in total, I believe, of strange stories gathered during his time in this outer province. And his student had compiled them together in a single book called the Yue Chao Tung BG, which I think literally translates something like random notes from the cottage of subtle perception. Hmm. So not a super engaging title as far as what it actually contains. The genre that he's writing in, it's called Jigai. And this genre has been around for thousands of years. It's now 1800 something, uh, late 1700s when he's writing but it's been around since, I believe, 200 BC from an earlier dynasty. But the genre, Zhiguai, literally translates to Zhi, meaning record, and Guai, meaning strange. So these are strange accounts, records that don't fit with how you would believe the world to be. Essentially, weird tales is kind of how it was translated at the time. True weird tales. Okay, and this is what I love. This is where it really connects to our show here and what we do. So a primary characteristic of this genre, Shiguai, and this comes from the book, these are short stories that are usually pretty brief. They're evocative stories, but in between the stories in this genre, they combine these stories with brief meditations on the strange, on what's happening, the phenomena going on, and they try to kind of corroborate them with each other. They say, these meditations on the strange were not meant to 
these standalone pieces, but to convey their truth inductively and cumulatively through functioning as part of larger collections or belief whole listener stories episodes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say strange listener stories, but it sounds like a, a collection of tales where in between you sort of reflect on what happens in the tale and yeah. do some correspondence with other accounts. Ji Yun is definitely a kindred spirit. It's just, it's exactly like what we try to do. Yeah. And uh, a quote from the book that describes what the purpose kind of of the Ji Guai is, is to incite, quote, a sense of sublime weirdness that alerts readers to previously unseen and frequently unsettling dimensions of reality which is also exactly the goal of the belief hole. Yeah. So we're about to get to our first bizarre account that he directly connects to from his own personal experience. But one last thing I want to mention about this that I think is really important is the truth angle. Now, you know, we're content creators. We're on YouTube. There's a lot of shows out there. But the importance of true stories versus, like, we don't do creepy pasta here in the hole. If you're new to the channel, I think that's something to kind of mention because it, it's hard to do that. It's hard to find and corroborate unique, original, allegedly true, reportedly true accounts. But there's a really great quote here. Chris, do you want to read this quote? Sure. Okay, this comes right from the book. This is not to say that all Zhiguai writers adhered to such lofty goals. By Zhiyun's time, in fact, most authors simply used the genre's strangeness to entertain and consequently fictionalized at will. Sounds familiar? familiar? Yeah. A harsh critic of this development Ji-Yoon actively worked against it. While he embraced fables that functioned as philosophical parables or satires, he was most invested in recording literally true accounts based on eyewitness or secondhand testimony, including most shockingly his own, expressed skepticism when called for, and was as interested in depicting social and concrete details from the real world and the psychology of fraud as he was in sharing accounts of the strange. Ironically, by virtue of their fidelity to truth-telling, Ji Yun's tales proved vastly more popular with Chinese readers than those of many of his contemporaries, a popularity that continues to our day. Interesting, yes. So I find that re relevant. So he was obviously focused on true accounts. That was where he was more focused and less on yeah. fictionalized versions. And he saw that in his contemporaries sort of leaning more towards the fictional tales kind of to just make probably a little more money as they're entertaining their audiences. It's easier to produce, well, in our day it would be content when you can just make up stories. There's some, I'm not going to point any fingers, of course, and there's a lot of entertaining channels out there that do really well and they put out an episode every few days on a seemingly uh, impossible amount of people coming forward about a particular phenomena. And you'll read the description and it'll say, the stories on this channel are all real or inspired by real events, or I've hired a writer to write similar stories of this type. Oh, right. Like buried at the bottom. Yeah. But to each their own. Yeah. I'm just saying there's a lot of confusion out there. And I think that's why it's important. At least I think it's good that we do, because I do think longstanding, the information that's interesting and the stories that really matter, I feel like, are the ones that are real, especially if you're trying to get to a truth of some kind. Yeah. A greater strange truth of reality doing the work and trying to find true stories. Anyway, that's why I love this guy. I love that he does that and has put this together and the authors for translating, editing it. F fiction's great. I think the, yeah. the key though is obviously like when it muddies the waters, when you're trying to do right. real research, that's when it gets a little Yeah, just be straightforward. Frustrating. I don't know. For me, it's a personal kind of like, I just don't want the waters to be muddied when you're trying to find some kind of truth behind all this stuff. So I think it's just all about the transparency too, you know? Yeah, That's absolutely. what makes a difference. Just be transparent about if you're making stuff up. 
Because people still might like it as entertainment, but right. it's, it's not the same thing as doing the deep research and figuring out, you know, what's really going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Creepy pasta channels, I think are great and they have their place, you know, and they're entertaining. But yeah, if you don't say what it is and then you're slipping it in with someone's real experience, then it's kind of disingenuous. You have a special place in hell. It's <laughs> <laughs> not going to go that far. Yikes. Just kidding. All right. Let's get into some good tales. Speaking of allegedly true accounts. Okay. Now, John, have you heard of the Zhang Shi? Many times. Figured you might. <laughs> As a student of ancient Chinese folklore. <laughs> As a student of ancient Chinese history. <laughs> anyway, this, this is fascinating. This is the Chinese vampire. <sighs> and there are so many eerie cross-cultural connections with the vampire. We've talked about that before. We've never had done a full episode of the vampire, but looking at the Zhang Shi and so many other cultures, you, things will just jump out at you. For instance, they are living corpses who feed on the chi of the living or the life force. Sounds familiar? Sometimes they'll even consume blood or flesh. Now, there are two types of the Jiangxi. The first kind is just basically a body that reanimates. So these are almost like uh, zombies in a sense, but specifically going after people. I guess zombies do that too. But they have vampire-like qualities. The more dangerous type, other than the seemingly unintentional resuscitation of a corpse, are the corpses that are reanimated by an outside agent. Now, this could be a spell or lightning or apparently even a pregnant cat walking across the grave, mm. which apparently animals crossing a grave, pregnant animals especially, is a similar attribute to the reanimation of corpses, the idea that that, that can lead to either a soul or the essence of something, that life force being transferred into the corpse. Just an interesting kind of idea hmm. and scientifically provable. While the grave... Oh, this kind of interesting... In the book, it, it mentions, it says, while in the grave their emotions have soured, thoughts have gone feral, and their rank bodies have fermented and stiffened into more monstrous possibilities. If freed from the dirt, these fiends will spread terror in the night by killing, infecting, feeding, and leaving the dry husks of their victims in their wake. Does that sound familiar? Dry husks. Mm -hmm. Maybe blood dry? Of blood. Just like a vampire that we know might do so he has um, an account of this right that's that's why you're yeah, yeah. giving the background here I'm about to get to that about to get to that but the last interesting attribute of this is that there is a connection with the the living so in this case it, it almost sounds like the vampires can be bodies that have been their souls have been replaced their consciousness by maybe some other spirit or something or it's a piece of themselves but they there does seem to be an attachment and attraction to those that they knew in the in their life kind of like ghosts might be spirits might be drawn or stuck or haunting a family member, that kind of idea. Right. Uh, here's an example of this. John, would you read this bit here? This actually comes from another writer, I believe, that he references in his, in his work. But it's just an interesting example. In his writing, Tales Forbidden by the Master, the Zhiguai writer Wen Mei tells of a government official who encountered a deceased friend while on a stroll at night. The official, following his Confucian training, kept his emotions steady and registered neither surprise nor fear, as if it were the most natural thing to come across the dead in the midnight hours. His formerly stoic friend, though, manically cycled through several extreme emotions. Chattiness, gratitude, and finally, a deep sadness a state from which he suddenly emerged with ferocious energy to launch himself at the official 
snarling and clacking his teeth as he tried to sink them into his former friend. It sounds like a vampire. Pretty disturbing, huh? It just reminds me of that scene in uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Was it Luke Wilson? No, who's the guy who was like floating in the window? Was that David Arquette? Yes. He's like trying to get him to let him in. I think he was missing an arm. Let me in, man. <laughs> just let it open the window. Great scene. What a weird way to act though. Chattiness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like it seems almost like he was confused, right? Almost like a zombie type entity that's not sure they're dead or they're dead, but they're, or maybe he's trying to like be like, hey buddy, what's up? But then he's getting nervous and anxious. Yeah. It's obviously not the same stripe of vampire that you have maybe in like Eastern European areas right? or the Slavic areas. It's just a weird swing of emotions. Yeah. Chattiness, gratitude, mm-hmm. and a deep sadness. It's just strange. It reminds me of, consider that his his body, and they talk about the Po and the Hun, I believe, as far as like Chinese philosophical explanation of this. But imagine that the body is just your animalistic part that's left after your soul's gone. Spirit's gone. And whatever is left of you is trying to figure out how to operate this body on its own. So it's it's kind of hitting all the buttons. Like imagine being inside a machine it is rifling through these different emotions and like programs and then finally just falls into sadness. And then it's like, oh yeah, I'm hungry. I need to consume you to continue my life. That's kind of what, that was my translation of it. Or a severe mental disorder. <laughs> yeah, maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe he like came out of some illness and then was suddenly found roaming on the street and then went through this, perhaps these cycles and then attacked his friend because he wanted his blood. Maybe clawed his way out of the grave and was still alive. And just was kind of broken. Either way, interesting. Yes, let's keep going. Yeah. So this next story uh, along this vein, this comes specifically from someone that Ji Yun knew. His father actually had an acquaintance named Dr. Hu. That's Dr. H-U, not the science fiction guy. Uh, Dr. Hu Gongshan. So this guy, he was kind of, he almost seemed like a legendary kind of figure in the area. He was reserved about his past. A lot of rumors circulated around him. I think being involved in the rebel army at one point but extremely skilled at martial arts. This guy was a badass. Even in his old age, uh, apparently some bandits tried to commandeer his sailing vessel, his boat of some sort, and he grabbed a long stem pipe and whipped it around like a, quote, fishing pole and jabbing them in the eyes and nostrils (laughs) to fight them off. (laughs) And apparently did so. Uh, So this guy was not the kind of guy you think would be afraid, never afraid of fighting men. But strangely, at some point, Doctor Who was afraid of the dark. He would lock himself in his house when the sun set and wouldn't come out until the sun came back up. And Ji Yun noticed this change in him. And he couldn't figure out why a guy, you know, this badass of a guy, would be afraid of the dark. Well, that is until this Doctor Who shared two different episodes with him from his past that explained his fear of what might be lurking. John. Would you read a story that I've titled Vampire in the Wood, A Fight in the Dark? Zhang Shi, Doctor Who said, were not just monsters made up to frighten children. They were actual creatures. At least he had encountered two entities in his long life that corresponded to Zhang Shi legends. The first attacked him in the dark of the woods one evening when he was a young man. As with the villains in the boat, he fought back. He could barely see what he was fighting, other than it was person-shaped and oddly stiff and spastic in its movements, as if missing half its joints. Still, he felt hopeful because he was so good at fighting men, but this time his martial skills meant nothing. 
Although he punched and smashed his knuckles against the figure, Doctor Who might as well have been punching a wooden door or a rock wall. At last, he rushed to a tree to scramble as high as he could on its swaying branches. He was sure the creature would follow, but it turned out that its weirdly rigid body was no good at climbing, although he could hear it trying, like a bird beating itself against a window. The creature tried to reach Doctor Who all night. Its dumb, stubborn arms hugged the tree stiffly as it circled in broken little skips, trying to gain the momentum to launch itself upward. Creepy. Exhausted and terrified, Doctor Who clung to his perch until morning came, bringing with it the young light of the sun. At this point, the figure's movement slowed until it stopped moving altogether, as if it had abruptly died while holding the tree and now adhered there like a cicada shell. Despite the apparent death of the creature, Doctor Who remained afraid to move until he heard jangling sounds. They belonged to a procession of belled camels and their owners. The numbers of traveling group gave him the courage to scramble down from his sanctuary. On the ground, Doctor Who got his first close look at what tried to kill him. Man-shaped, yes, but not a man. Although it looked like it might have been at one time, covered with a snowy something resembling fur or mold and possessing blood-colored eyes, talon-like hands, and pointed teeth so long that they jutted past his lips. The deep wrongness of the creature, which managed to be both aesthetic and moral, disturbed Doctor Who to his core. Has cre- a creepy visual. Yeah. I love the uh, cicada shell visual. Yeah. Like it died, or it ran out of juice by morning, essentially. It just was stuck there. So it's got this sort of fur or mold and talon-like hands and protruding teeth. That really sounds monstrous. It's weird that it died that way. Yeah. It just had a very short lifespan. Like well, that's an interesting too. Yeah, like the cicada kind of connection. It also kind of reminded me of the sun coming up, the extinguishing of the vampire. Oh, I didn't even put that together. I don't know if there was a connection with that. It's weird that he doesn't make that connection. Maybe it's maybe that has some connection, but he wasn't even aware of that sort of mythology when it comes to vampire lore from other parts of the world who knows yeah interesting sounds like more than just a vampire maybe it was yeah. a vampire that like mutated or something <laughs> vampires by jj abrams <laughs> yeah well i mean that's the thing is like we're talking about vampires like like they are a certain way and right. we obviously in the west and in, in hollywood have a depiction of the vampire but it all comes from different kinds of legends and that's true but that's what's really interesting is they're very different descriptions of the vampire, but they all have similar kind of attributes. Feeding off a life force, basically, right? Whether it's energy or blood yeah, or, you know. Exactly. And there was a really interesting kind of curious uh, meditation on this in the book that I just kind of want to briefly mention. Like, it is strange. Apparently, he received a lot of these reports, uh, reports of the living after death type stories and tried to make sense of it. And it seems strange to him because, of course, how, you know, in, in his belief, the essence of the person leaves the body the soul, if you want to call it that, the consciousness, chi, how can it animate itself with such ferocity? Where does that energy come from? And he references an earlier philosopher, I can't remember at the moment who that was, but basically talking about the po, the bestial po, which is like your body's made up of two kind of symbiotic life forces. There's the, the po, which is like the more animalistic kind of primitive, we might consider it like the reptilian mind. And then there's the heavenly hun, which is like the consciousness, the, the 
part of you that would elevate. And when you die, the Hun would essentially ascend, move on to the next life, either be reincarnated or explore the heavenly realm, whereas the Po is supposed to dissolve into the earth. So it's a part of you that you don't take with you. And this is a parallel. It reminded me of the Chindi. Yeah, as I was thinking. Was that Cherokee? Navajo. It was Navajo. Navajo. The belief that a person should be moved outside when they die or die outside because the Chindi, we would refer to it as spirit scum here in the hole. It's that part of you that may get stuck in a negative repeating form of yourself or, or some kind of semi-conscious energy that could, could manifest as like a, a, a mean poltergeist, yeah. for instance. But there, that was just an interesting connection cross-culturally, I felt like, with the Poe. So this guy had suggested, this other scholar he references, that the Poe could explain these vampire-type entities in that the Poe, the part of the person that's supposed to just dissipate into the earth, fights back to live longer. And so takes control of the full body. <laughs> Goes back into the body. <laughs> yeah, and then can't... It's animalistic, it's fighting for more life, it has to steal life energy from others. And that would explain it. But interesting, the whole time I'm thinking like, we've covered a lot in the leaf hole, a lot of stories, you know, possession or imposter entities. And my thought was like, well, if a corpse like that could be reanimated, couldn't it be, I mean, think of the further, for instance, in Insidious, couldn't it be that something has gone into the body, the person and taken over while there's still life in the corpse itself and then reanimated it. So another evil entity. Anyways, I just found that really interesting. I was thinking that. And then Ji Yun goes on to say himself, he leans towards the same possibility that a, quote, non-human force or wandering spirit may possess the body. And that those memories that would draw them to, you know, like we heard the guy on the bridge whose friend comes looking for him or, and then goes through his mix of emotions before trying to attack him, that the body itself could contain some memory that could connect them to people they knew in their life, even though it may be an, a physical imposter entity, if you will, another spirit mm. or evil presence that had invades a, a corpse that has some life in it. Anyways, a lot of crazy things to talk about, ways you could go with that story, a lot of spinoff. But when it comes to the vampire, I did find, I was just looking for like cross-cultural stuff. I found this early reference, well, I would say an early publication of a much older reference to a vampire that Moncure Daniel Conway in 1879 referred to as the hungry ghost. And this is from his book, Demonology and Devil Lore from 1879. Chris, do you want to read this one? Sure. So this is that vampiric connection. Okay. There is another and much more formidable form in which the hunger demon appears in demonology. Fondness for blood, so characteristic of supreme gods, was distributed as a special thirst through a large class of demons. In the legend of Ishtar, descending to Hades to seek some beloved one, she threatens if the door be not opened. Quote, I will raise the dead to be devourers of the living. Upon the living shall the dead prey. This menace shows that the Chaldean and Babylonian belief in the vampire, called Akaru in Assyrian, was fully developed at a very early date. Interesting. Yes, that's millennia earlier. Very cool. That description of very vampiric-like entity. I just found that really interesting. And again, that came from Demonology and Devil Lord by Moncure Daniel Conway, 1879. Interesting. But these connections are everywhere, guys. These nodes of truth are bubbling about the world. But this mysterious Doctor Who has even more mysterious experiences. Uh, this is his second encounter. Oh, I love this experience. This 
Fantastic. This is a great one. This is his encounter with, I think, it's still in the Jiangxi category, according to Jian, but it does sound more like a succubus to me. Either way, I feel bad for Dr. Who. <laughs> He's got a lot, of, a lot of things coming after him. As bad as this first encounter was, Dr. Who's second proved worse. It happened at a guest house in a remote spot in the mountains. He was sound asleep when a movement beneath his sheets woke him. Thinking a rat or a snake had found its way into his bed, Doctor Who refrained from sudden motion to avoid getting bitten and lay still to watch the progress of whatever it was, at least until it poked its head out of the sheets and could easily be caught by the neck. However, before his widened eyes, the thing beneath the sheets began to impossibly swell until it was the size of a human head. And then the sheets inflated further as the rough form of a body formed around that. When the thing did poke out of the sheets, it was indeed a head, a woman's, and it stretched its way onto his pillow as its owner's naked body turned to him, feverishly warm. Despite the woman thing's beauty and the silky heat of her flesh, Doctor Who felt no lust, but he was so paralyzed with fear that he did not fight her either when her impossibly long arms wound around him and crushed him close. Nor did he fight when she forced her stinking mouth against his in a kiss so pungent with decay and blood that he gagged and passed out. He was unconscious during what happened after that. His blackout would have been a mercy except for one thing. He couldn't be roused from it when he was discovered later. In fact, he would have likely died without ever opening his eyes again if a physician hadn't been found with the good sense to treat Doctor Who with antitoxins and reversal agents. These were massaged down his gullet until he regained consciousness. It was after this that the dark began to make Doctor Who tremble because he knew it was not empty. Oh, that's crazy. Man. So then he was afraid of the dark. What a grotesque uh, night encounter. Yeah, it's so weird. Very bizarre. Yeah. I had dreams of that. Yeah. Thinking about that, I've, I swear I've had like dreams of encounters like that where beings like that have tried to kiss me or I have kissed them. Mm -hmm. And it's like disgusting. Something's wrong. I don't know. It's not like demonic, but it, okay. it's something off about that. Yeah. Something tricking you yeah. into some sort of coitus on the astral plane or something. And then I'm like, eh. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here, silky bus. Buy me dinner first. Brush your teeth. <laughs> but it, of course, this is, this is parallel to the, the succubus, right? From European lore. Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, Babylonian. It's fascinating. Um, Greek lore, even. I think the earliest recorded, like written account would be from the apocryphal book of the Tobit. That's how you pronounce it. Which part of the Old Testament, old Jewish text from the third century BC. So this thing goes back, but even earlier, even earlier than the, the Jewish folklore, which knew her as Lilith the first wife of Adam. We've talked about this before. Right. The idea, the mythology behind her is that she was a demon, became a demon, believed to go on to seduce and copulate with men in their sleep and strangle newborn babies. Actually, if you go back earlier to Samaria, now the belief in the succubus or the word for the succubus in Akkadian or Sumerian legends would be uh, Lilitu, I believe. So this might have been an earlier iteration of Lilith. But that goes back to at least 2000 BC, likely much older, maybe back to 4000 BC. That's 
so many millennia before, and people today are still experiencing this. So, you know, interestingly, people will say, well, because there, there is this, I don't know if you call it a movement, but a recognition that the succubus and with the witch trials and the history of female oppression, there are certain scholars and, and blog writers that will say, well, this is just an easy scapegoat for men's, um, what's the word? Oh, subjugation of women or something. Prom- and promiscuity at night. And yeah, a way to, I guess, blame the female, these kinds of ideas, which I, like, I get that point. I think historically there's, there's definitely some value to that. But I think sometimes that kind of perspective, I think it foregoes the reality of the thing that people do experience. There are people that are traumatized from experiences, what they would refer to as the incubus or the succubus, night paralysis with this kind of dark nightmare, nightmarish creature, this demon right. that they've experienced. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes, guys, if you're interested, there's a really interesting YouTube video that's from an old bio, the channel biography, uh, an interview with a woman who was basically stalked by this incubus. And then her roommate eventually ends up being haunted by it as well. It's a really moving story. She ends up almost dying. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's equal opportunity demon. I mean, in, yeah, the succubus has the incubus male counterpart. So it's not obviously just a, a female right. demon. It is both male and female as, as far as like the seduction or the, you know, violation at night right. from this entity. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, early Christian texts, was it St. Thomas? Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas said he believed that you could actually be impregnated by an incubus, but the way you'd have to do it is it would first be a succubus and take the sperm from a living male that it encounters, then it transforms into an incubus and becomes the male and then impregnates the woman. Very, I mean, they put a lot of thought into this back then on how these things would work. But yeah, so definitely interesting. Demonic artificial insemination would be the... Who knows, but yeah. Definitely a phenomenon that still happens. Well, yeah, and the final connection historically that I think adds some more weight to it that I think is interesting, I'd never heard of this before, was from the, uh, the Nordic folk tradition of the, the Mara. Oh, yes. The Mara is really interesting because this also has a connection with our story that we just heard from Ji Yun, which is, of course, the familiar traits, the pressure on the chest, the causing of nightmares, feeling of anxiety, and specifically, the kiss. The Mara has something called the Mar kiss. Kiss of the Mara, which reportedly would leave blisters on the victim the next day around the mouth, which some people said was an early explanation for oral herpes. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. But beyond that, beyond that, some stories talk about the Mara sucking blood. So there's mm-hmm. the vampire connection with the succubus. And then the, I think the interesting attribute to me with this story specifically was the references describing her as having grotesque long arms. Oh, just like the account you just read. Mm-hmm. Just like the story. Long fingers, nails, and even long uh, breasts uh, in some cases that could wrap around a horse. So that's kind of an interesting, very specific hmm. <laughs> depiction. Interesting. But this, so this gives is, saddlebags a whole new meaning. Womp womp. <laughs> Sorry. I wanted to laugh, but I Sorry. thought it'd be funnier if I didn't. So th- I found one reference, and this is our final piece of weight to the succubus for now, of the Mara, dating back to the 13th century. This comes from the Yinglinga saga which is a part of a collection of sagas of the Norwegian kings. So our line of genetic history. Yes. Because we, of course, must have descended from kings. And this was written by the Icelandic poet and historian Snorri Sturluson. Uh, Sturluson. Chris, do you want to read this quote here? Actually, we did have a, a great uncle Snorri. Did you know that? Oh, really? From Norway. Yeah. All right. I, I shall go. Ready? Yep. Driva bribed the witch wife, Hold either that she should bewitch Finlanda to return to Finland, 
or kill him. When this witch work was going on, Vinlanda was at Uppsala, and a great desire came over him to go to Finland. But his friends and counselors advised him against it and said the witchcraft of the Finn people showed itself in this desire of his to go there. He then became very drowsy and laid himself down to sleep. But when he had slept but a little while he cried out, saying that the Mara was treading upon him, his men hastened to him to help him. But when they took hold of his head, she trod on his legs. And when they laid hold of his legs, she pressed upon his head, and it was his death. The Swedes took his body and burnt it at a river called Skaita, where a standing stone was raised over him. Huh. So yeah, another invisible entity holding, pinning someone down in their sleep. It seemed like he had sort of fainted. Yeah, it's specific succubus account for sure. From the 13th century. Yeah, fascinating. From Norse folklore. So, I mean, it's global. It's throughout the world, this phenomena, along with the vampire. But I think the succubus specifically in the, the Nachtmare even today, people experience that. Um, so yeah, go check that out on the show notes, guys. The, the book's amazing, and uh, but I'm going to have a link to that interview that was pretty touching with that girl who experienced something. I think if you're skeptical and you watch her account, you'll be pretty moved to think that she was experiencing something like this, and uh, it almost killed her. So that'll, that'll be in the show notes. But with that, guys, how about we take a quick break? Yes, and when we come back, we're going to get into some really excellent tales one of a Yaren abduction, which I'm super excited to discuss. It's a Bigfoot, right? Yes, a Yaren or Yeti, because it is in the, in the Himalayan mountains where this occurs in the 1700s. Really interesting. And then we're going to talk about the forest that was a nest. So just ponder what that might mean as we take our break. Creepy. What's up on Expansion. Ooh, expansion. Oh, yeah. Good question. Yes, yes, yes. Good question, John. Why don't you let people know what expansion is for new listeners real quick, Ooh. just real quick. So the expansion, if you're new here to the belief hole, is our members-only bonus episodes that you can get right now, actually. If you sign up, go to beliefhole.com, click on the big red, join the expansion button. You get access to 80 plus bonus episodes, full length, just like our main episodes, fully produced, uh, sound designed, story told, and researched. Tons of fun. And every time we drop an episode going forward on the main feed, you will get at the same time a full-length bonus episode to go along with that. So it is well worth it. Ask any of the members and they will tell you it's a good place to be. Join the expansion today. Yes. Yeah. Chris, give us a preview of this expansion. Yeah. So this expansion I'm really excited about. So if you've been enjoying this, you'll love the expansion because we've just begun to peel back the really fascinating accounts that he has in this voluminous compendium of forgotten and strange occurrences from ancient China. We're gonna connect even more bizarre reports with contemporary accounts around the world, including alien abduction for breeding purposes, trickster ghosts that create deadly illusions, and even hear the horrifying story of our main character here, Ji Yun, his haunting on Juchao Street, and the horrifying things that he and his family experienced while living there. And then we're also going to get into battlefield NDEs, John. You're going to love that one. Oh, yeah. Near-death experiences. Cases of spirit bureaucracy, uh, gorilla face delicacies, and fairy abduction. So it's going to be a super explosively bizarre expansion episode. So make sure you sign up for that. And one more final thing before we go to break. We've got a special shout out to a show very similar to The Belief Hole 
Believing the Bazaar coming up. We're going to play a little clip right after the expansion preview. If you like the whole, you're going to like these guys, Charlie and Tyler. I just found out they're from Ohio too. So Ohio boys, shout out. Go check them out. Go give them some love from Belief Hole. You're going to like them. So stick around for that after the expansion preview, and we'll be right back after the break. Access granted. That summer, Shen Tai Chan went hunting in the Zion Mountains to restore his spirits after a long illness. The hunting trip proceeded unremarkably, with one noted exception. Something followed him out of the woods. This something took the form of two orbs in the sky, turning like windmills. No one else could see the orbs. Even Tai Chan didn't see them in the way that one normally sees, which is to say that he could see them when he looked up even if his eyes were closed. For several days, the orbs silently followed. Then suddenly, without warning, they broke open. From inside, two young women emerged, floated down, and delivered a message. Their mistress, a Xian Nu fairy, wished to meet Tai Chan. Knowing that he could not reject such an invitation, Tai Chan agreed to meet the Xian Nu. Instantaneously, he was transported to a room. This already starts to sound like an alien abduction. It was unlike any he had ever been in. Its dimensions were dizzying, and its massive jade walls were eccentrically decorated with odd purple seashells. The room's strangeness made Tai Chan tremble, but its effect paled compared to the appearance of the Xian new mistress. She was beautiful, yes, but it was not a peaceful beauty. It was the kind of beauty that disturbs because it exceeds limits, like John. <laughs> Her words exceeded limits as well. Shocking Tai Chan, the Xian Nu asked him to become her lover. What's up? I'm Charlie. And I'm Tyler. And we are Believing the Bizarre, a paranormal podcast that dives into the unknown and the unusual every Tuesday. We discuss hauntings, cryptids, aliens, UFO encounters, conspiracies, and more. And we break down whether or not we find them believable. All right, listen, if you're not paying for electricity, you're not paying for dinner. Saw a terrifying looking face pressed to the window with gaping eyes. I almost reached it when the laughter stopped suddenly and a sound behind me made me turn around. Like, uh, sorry, like, I, I was gonna do it, but then I got, I got, I had SpaceX. So we got you covered, whether you like horror or laughs or both. We really hope it's both. With over 2 million downloads, you'll be joining a bizarro community that we promise is more than just Mothman and our parents. We even take creepy stories from our listeners and turn them into their own episodes. Check out Believing the Bizarre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Believing the Bizarre a podcast as bizarre as you are. Welcome back from the break, guys. Hello. Hope you enjoyed your break as we did ours. Chris, take us into the mountains. Yes. Oh, I'm excited for this. Is that where we're, is that where we're headed? Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. We're going to be journeying over to where Ji Yun spent his exile for these next two accounts. During his time there, he collected these. This first story is called Yaren Stones. Hmm. And you know, I'm not sure if 
these stories are titled by the authors who published this book this past year. You mean the editor and translator? Yeah, or if these were originally titled by Ji Yun himself. I'm not sure. The, the book, again, The Shadow Book, fantastic. What's the subtitle there? Oh, it's uh, The Shadow Book of Ji Yun, Imperial Librarian and Investigator of the Strange. And this, again, is edited and translated amazingly by Yi Izzy Yu and John Yu Branscombe. Yes. The art's pretty sweet, too. Indeed. But so I'm not sure about that specifically, but the reason I say that is because this, um, well, you'll see, you'll see why. I'll, I'll touch back on that after we read this account, but this takes place during his exile. While I was exiled to army service in Urumqi, I often interviewed prisoners, both to collect information important to the emperor's military concerns and tales relevant to my project of recording the strange. In this way, I happened to interview a criminal named Gong Chaorong. He told me about a merchant who had journeyed to Tibet a few years before to sell goods. The merchant was accompanied by a second merchant and two donkeys loaded with merchandise. The journey went badly. First, the small band got lost in the middle of an icy Himalayan mountain range. Then, as they were desperately seeking a familiar landmark, they saw a dozen figures leap from the rock shelf in the distance. Terrified, the merchants were sure that they were about to be robbed and killed. But as they trembled and waited to fight for their lives, the bipedal figures drew closer, and the merchants saw, to their shock, that they were not bandits. The figures were not even human. Between two and three meters tall, the towering creatures that approached the merchants were covered with dark hair, streaked with yellow and hazel brown. And while their faces verged on being human, they weren't quite there. The same could be said of their speech, if that's what it was. While it contained some nonsensical sounds that were human-like, others were more like sharp grunts and hoots made by an animal. That's so familiar. Right? Frightened by the creature's appearance, the merchants threw themselves to the earth, covered their heads with their arms, and bawled and pleaded as if they were about to be torn into pieces. But instead of attacking, the humanoids burst into animalish laughter. After gently picking up the men as if they were no more than children's toys, they forcibly marched them and the donkeys up and over hills and rocks until arriving at an open, flat space. This appeared to be a frequent gathering place for the creatures, because once there, they pushed one donkey into a hole and cut up the other. Hmm, sad. Yeah, poor donkey. You gotta eat, though. <laughs> After cooking the donkey meat on a kindled fire, the creatures foisted some onto the two men as if they were guests. Exhausted, hungry, and relieved that they were not apparently bound for the fire themselves, the men happily ate. As they did, the creatures also gobbled the meat, while chatting with each other in a bizarre tongue and casting sharp looks at the men. When full, the creatures patted their swollen abdomens and broke out in sharp, high-pitched and horsey sounds like some kind of weird celebratory song. A little while later, a few of the creatures picked up the men and carried them off at an incredible pace, as quickly as monkeys can swing or birds can fly while carrying something up and down wooded slopes and valleys, until they reached a well-traveled road that was familiar to the merchants. There, the creatures dropped the men to their feet and gave each a melon-sized stone 
before flashing back into the trees. The stones turned out to be turquoise of a particularly high quality. Upon reaching their village, the men sold these stones for far more than what they had lost. And here ends our story. Fascinating. Weird. Yeah. That is very strange. But so much of that sounds familiar, right? They're specifically using the word hoots mm-hmm. and and the high-pitched whistles, but also human-like almost jabber mm-hmm. kind of in there too. You, there's some recordings. Like the samurai. Yeah. I forget the name of that recording. Maybe we can drop it in. I think it's colloquial known as the samurai recordings. But yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And it sounds like my interpretation would be that these guys are walking along with their donkeys and either these... Yaren, if you want to call them that, took this as an offering. You know, the Yeti, the Bigfoot, whatever you want to call them, took it as an offering. And so they're like, oh, come, you can eat with us. Thank you for your food. Chopped it up, gave him some of the food, <laughs> right. and then gave him a gift and, and returned him. It's a tit for tat. Just really interesting. But it, it, there's a similar stories of Sasquatch abductions. Now, there's that famous one that, I don't know if it was a frontiersman, pioneer that was abducted, oh, yeah. taken away for a couple of days and then managed to escape when they were sleeping or something, but that's a famous story. Yeah, very similar account. That was um, Albert Ostman. He was a prospector in British Columbia, pretty sure. Yeah, across the other side of the earth. So yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so, and again, like the the gifting, right? This is something you hear a lot about and when it comes to Bigfoot lore. It must be pretty high intelligence, obviously, Yeah, because they understood that they took something that wasn't theirs, but they probably did it because they needed food. Yeah. And then they, in return, gave them something of value. Mm-hmm, exactly. And this is a thing you hear a lot. There's whole websites dedicated to this gifting practice of Sasquatch, or depending on where you are in the world. Really? It's that common. Yeah. But oftentimes people who live in remote areas will leave food out specifically for this purpose because they will, they claim to get back in return sticks, stones, acorns, sometimes junk from other people's places that the, the things will leave on their canopy of their RV or what, what have you. So gifting is a very, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah it makes sense because it's just very fairy-esque too. Mm-hmm. Fairy lore, gifting back and forth. Even when cultures meet for the first time, you know, Europeans and Indians, when there wasn't fighting, there'd be exchanging of gifts. And right. Gifts. So it's just interesting of different kinds of people coming together. Yeah. Oh, I would love to get a, a Bigfoot gift. <laughs> How, I mean, that would be right on my mantle. <laughs> <laughs> my number one prize. Uh, yeah. But yeah, there's a, I just grabbed a quick little quote here just because I love this. A uh, book from Timothy Renner and Joshua Cutchin, Where the Footprints End, they have a specific chapter on gifting practices. And in this book, Timothy wrote, quote, Of course, there is more to gifting than food exchanges, because that chapter was initially about the food exchanges that go on. Bigfoot deal also in sticks, toys, stones, marbles, cairns, and all manner of random objects, as did its folklore forebearers. Quote, Anything glittery, shiny, tinkly, Curiously shaped, edible, drinkable, throwable, or indeed interesting in any way at all was coveted by giants, end quote, wrote David Larkin. European giants are analogous to Bigfoot, not only in their stature, but also their hairiness and alleged cannibalistic tendencies. So at this point of the book, he was relating, you know, Bigfoot to the giant folklore. But fascinating. Again, that gifting practice all around. And as you said, Jer, obviously fairy. Faelor, we get a whole thing with gifting with that, leaving things out, Halloween or around that time of the year, Christmas. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but yeah, that's pretty much what I have for that story. I was just going to mention quickly the Yaren. That's the Chinese sort of Bigfoot wild man, most famously reported in the uh, Xin Nongju Forestry District in Hubei province. Oh, let's go there. But these sightings go back all the way to 340 BCE and even up into the Tang Dynasty 
uh, which was 618 to 907 CE, before they kind of solidified into the modern legend of the Yaren. And then, of course, a lot of people out there will be listening, about oh, this took place in the Himalayas, that's the Yeti. Well, yes, Yeti, right. for the Tibetan Tibet. people, the Yeti who is you know, sometimes animal, sometimes, but also a mystical, spiritual creature. But it was a wild man type figure, ape-like, hairy creature. Interestingly enough, though, in these stories, in the religious stories of the Tibetan people, the uh, Yeti carried a large stone as a weapon, always with the stones, and uh, makes a characteristic whistling sound. What does it sound like in the West? Oh, so familiar. The Bigfoot shrieks, yips, whistles. Uh, just interesting. But again, fascinating. I love, I love these stories because they correlate so well to things going, still going on today and all over the world. Yeah. Um, yes, but that is, that is a great tale. And Jian's last contribution to our main episode today is called The Forest That Was a Nest. Now, this is a super, I think, creepy. I love this one. This might be my favorite. Yeah. And I have a theory about this one. Okay, so this story, again, takes place in the region in the province where Ji Yun was exiled to, Urumqi. Was banished? Yes, Spanish exiled, what, whatever you want to say. Um, he was put there because he wasn't good, they thought. Um, <laughs> so... This, so I'll give you a little backstory on this, this area, this forest that wasn't as why, you know, what happened, the, some events that happened there. So in the summer of 1768, a group of criminals in a village near Urumqi were sent into exile. But it just so happened that their sentencing date was also the start of the annual mid-autumn festival. So what the soldiers decided to do was to throw them a going away party, the soldiers that were looking after these prisoners. That's nice. So they've got food and drink, and it's in this nearby meadow that they throw this party, which I think is an awesome idea. I'd love to have a party in a meadow for some reason. It sounds nice. But they throw them this party. They throw them this kick-ass meadow party where there's drinks and food. Everybody's having a great time. <laughs> Prisoner party. <laughs> so weird. Leading up to this exile, this going away party. But the soldiers drink a little too much and they get a little rambunctious. And during the course of this frivolity, they start to treat the prisoners' wives and daughters not so good. They're getting aggressive. They're making the women and daughters dance like, quote, good time girls. Good time girls. Which I think at the time meant, you know, women for hire. Oh. So at this point, the mood completely changes. The whole atmosphere shifts at the party. And the prisoners revolt. They overcome their captors, the people throwing the party in the first place, and they bludgeon them all to death. Oh. So at this point, you think that the prisoners would take this opportunity to flee the village and to escape, right? To find their freedom outside the walls of the village. But no, they go to the armory, they raid the armory, and they spend the next few days hunting down and murdering all the other officers, imperial officers and soldiers in the village. It's kind of badass. Kind of badass. <laughs> yeah, it all depends on how you're looking at well, it. They probably don't want those officers to go back to the empire and call for reinforcements. It takes some balls, though, to yeah. not just like run. <laughs> right. Well, these were, these were rebels, weren't they? Weren't they part rebels of the empire? Yes. That's why they were imprisoned. Is that right? So they were dangerous to begin with? Yeah, these guys That's why you were, don't mess with their women. That's why you don't party with them either. Interesting, though. What an, what an interesting culture in this place and at this time where you have the prison guards and the imperial soldiers deciding to throw a going away party for the people that they're exiling. Yeah, pretty cool. And also exiling doesn't seem that bad of a punishment, really. I mean, if you're going to do something to people, right? don't come back. I mean, it is bad because you're, you're far away from the civilized parts of the territory, so they're not going to have access to you know, clothing, food, and water very easily. They have to live on, on the land. But anyway. Yeah. So it's better than death. Better than death. Yeah. I will take an exile. Thank you. If it ever comes to that. Give me Australia. <laughs> yes. Anyway, 
so they've taken over the village. And this is interesting too, because you know he's writing from the perspective of the imperial librarian. So you know whose side he's on. So when he's talking about this, he's saying they terrorize the village for the next three days. So is it, depending on how you're looking at it in history, is it terrorizing the village? Did they assault the actual people who live there? Or was it just the soldiers? We don't really know. Yeah, it's possible. Either way, they spend these three days doing this and then they don't take their chance to leave until rumors start to spread around the village that indeed the Imperial forces are on their way to take down these rebels and these prisoners. But it's too late. They flee the village, but they've, they've run out of time. And as they're trying to flee the village and heading off towards the forest, the Imperial soldiers catch up to them and shoot their horses out from under them. And they all fall off into the dirt, at which point they're picked up and marched off into a nearby forest, the forest, which is the focus of our tale here. And in this forest, they are lined up and executed. Oh. So that's sort of the background to this, this read here, Jer, that I'll have you do. Okay. And again, the title of this section from the Shadow Book is The Forest That Was a Nest. This series of events is appalling and gruesome, to be sure. But what happened next proved even more disturbing. The forest where the executions took place was odd. So odd that it was locally known as The Nest. A name bestowed because inside its shade, one always felt watched by something terrible just out of sight. This something was said to somehow encourage bad things to happen within its boundaries. Sure enough, almost immediately after the rebels' execution, black clouds appeared. Low to the ground, they did not move like clouds. They moved like living things, like hunting things. Word quickly spread that if you were unlucky enough not to be clear of the forest by evening, these cursed clouds would swallow you whole. Most who disappeared in this way were never found, but a few survived their envelopment. They said that the insides of the clouds were like the mind of a madman, an endless, ethereal land, thick and reeking with vapors that caused panic, disorientation, and lost chunks of time. I was the supervisory official for a large region that included the nest during the period these events unfolded. Therefore, I launched an investigation into these sentient fogs. After interviewing survivors and witnesses and scanning historical accounts for parallels, I eventually connected their appearance to the execution of the mid-autumn festival rebels. I concluded that the clouds were made not of water vapor, but of yin energy. The dark type that manifests as bodily illness or evil intentions. Usually upon the body's death, its yin spiritual components disintegrate into the earth. This time they had not done so. Instead, they seeped into the forest, darkly infecting it. Similar to how the venom of certain toads, snakes, or spiders can infect the vegetation they touch. The nature of the problem identified, I mauled potential solutions. I finally decided that since Darkian energy disperses when confronted by young energy, I would recruit the help of soldiers known for their bright courage indications of strong young energy. I instructed them to hide in the forest on a night when the moon was especially well lit to await the clouds' appearance. Once they sighted the mists, they were to fire their guns, since the loud explosions would be strongly young in nature as well. This was a universal trait of explosions of all kinds, whether from fireworks or guns. 
and made them deeply attractive, as well as useful for driving away sadness, wetness, and mental sluggishness. Interesting. My hope was the surplus of this yang energy would counteract the excessive yin energy of the mists, just as the heating light of the sun clears morning fog. The soldiers did as ordered. As I suspected, their energy, when combined with that of their guns and the shining moon, caused the clouds to cough apart with small bright detonations and disperse. After that, the clouds were never seen again. No sign of the rebels, nor was any other. Interesting hearing the way that they look at the world and how relationships work between energy. Totally different than how you know we're raised to think of it here in the West. Yeah, especially the explosions. Yeah, the whole idea behind, and it's fun to read this because I looked deeper into this stuff and learned that yin and yang, which I always thought was yin and yang. Of course, someone I think corrected us on that a while back. <laughs> but we're no experts. Those forces are, you know, we think of things in the West, we th- tend to divide everything, black and white, you know, good and bad, things like that. But in this culture at this time, it was this idea that everything is always interconnected and everything is relationships with each other. So the yin and the yang. Symbiotic. Symbiotic, and you need both for anything to exist at all. And the yin energy is the sort of the the illness energy, the the still energy, the dark, it can be dark energy, where the yang is the vibrant creative and lively energy. So that that was his solution was like, well, we have these sort of death clouds. And I think his thought was that these were somehow the yin energy of these prisoners that were executed. Then we need the opposite of that to, you know, expunge them from the region. Yeah. To dissipate them. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I have some of my own theories of what it was actually going on, but it's pretty clearly, it's pretty clearly sky creatures. (laughs) Right. To me, it sounds like something coming down consuming something almost like a people some like sea sea creatures or or animals will have a sort of a neurotoxin mm-hmm. that will make oh, yeah. the, their victim go mad i'm sure that i'm sure that's a thing right but it just reminds me of like these things coming down and then consuming people some are never seen again and the ones that do come back with this experience of you know not to say that they're for sure sky creatures i'm just saying could be sky creatures could be yeah do you hear me <laughs> Don't give me that voice. If we can force a sky creature in a new episode, then that will happen because they are awesome. It doesn't need to be forced. (laughs) He landed here of his own accord. I just recognized him. Just think of Falcor. Oh, man. (laughs) It's totally Falcor. Good old Falcor. (laughs) I'm a luck dragon. (laughs) The weird winking he did. We just recently rewatched that in Texas with our friend's daughter. Here we go. (laughs) But I forgot how creepy his winks were. He has like this animatronic wink that he does. And sometimes they'll put that wink after a line where there doesn't need to be a wink. And you're like, why is he winking after that line? He does it a lot. (laughs) It gets a little creepy. For those of you younger listeners out there, we're talking about The NeverEnding Story, fantastic film adventure. And you got to see it. Fighting against the nothingness, which is still a good lesson today. So good. Believe in, uh, you know, creativity, imagination. What's the wolf called? Gamork. Gamork, is that it? Come at me, Gamork! Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Remember the rock rock man? Oh, the rock eater? Is that what he was? Anyway, check it out. It's a great, great film. We were supposed to talk about that on the live stream. I know, we forgot. I did. I know. That would have been a fun thing to talk about. Yeah, I know. Next one. We always have a list of things to talk about. We start talking before live stream, and we're like, save it, save it, save it. We'll talk about it on the live stream. And the live stream happens, and we forget like three of the things that we were going to talk about a live stream and then we never get to but we just did anyways, anyways uh, another thing i wanted to say about this account 
To me, this this was one of the most fascinating stories that I came across. I mean, there's some more fascinating ones that I have planned for the expansion, so you will want to check that out. Buckle up for that. But I really like this story because, uh, you know, we've covered for, we've covered Fordian Fox, as we've called it before, but the sentient mists that um, Jenny Randalls did such a good job covering back in the early 80s, late 70s. We have that great book, Time Storms, mm-hmm. from her. But so many of these accounts sound so similar to this experience that happened over 200 years ago. Fordian Fog. In China during this dynastic period, I guess you'd say. But it's the same thing where these clouds would s- swallow people whole and they, some would disappear. It makes you wonder, you know, she had stories about teleportation that would occur with these witnesses where, you know, missing time, being from one place when the mist gobbled them up, ending up in another area um, miles away in their car. Right, just like the lost chunks of time in this story. One story, particularly in that book that I came across when I was just looking over it again because of this account, it was bl- a black cloud. Again, I mean, visually almost identical sounding seemingly to this account here. Interesting. So there's a lot of interesting connecting. If we had, you know, we could do whole episodes on just connecting one of these stories. Is it the same phenomena? Yeah. I don't know, but it's a, either way, it's an interesting, interesting. I wonder if there's still things going on in this forest. Interesting, interesting to reach out to our Chinese listeners. See if they've experienced black clouds over there. Yeah. Let us know guys, if you're listening out there, if you're familiar with any of this lore or have your own experiences. Uh, Fascinating stuff though. I would definitely, again, recommend this book. Guys, get it. We'll have a link in the show notes for it. Uh, the Shadow Book of Ji Yun. Yeah. The Imperial Librarian, an investigator of the strange. Um, super fascinating, really well translated. Uh, the kind of dark, sarcastic humor of the author, Ji Yun, comes through. It just, it's a great casual read, too. Like, you don't have to be a Fordian researcher to enjoy the book. It, it's really broken up well into these, these chunkable, digestible stories. You sit down for five minutes or less and read one of the shorter accounts, you know? So it's, it's, it's a great book just to have on your coffee table. Yeah my opinion. Absolutely. So definitely, yes, get that book. And don't forget, join us in the expansion. We're going to have an incredible time discussing more of these crazy tales from Jin Yun. We're going to be talking again about battlefield NDEs, gorilla face delicacies. I'm excited for that short little fun tale. Fairy abduction, UFO abductions for breeding purposes. Naturally. Happened to me. And again, I think one of the coolest ones is Jiyun's own personal experience of the haunted home that he was in and the experiences he and his family had. So definitely join us for the expansion. It's going to be one of our best yet. 100%. Best. It's going to be great. And we are excited to share it with you guys. Get over there. Season five, expansion one. Excellent. Join us there. It's going to be great. And right now, I think it's a good opportunity to thank some very special people. Yes! Some supporters of the show who, without you, we could not and would not be doing this, uh, at least not nearly as much as we are right now. Um, You keep us going. You keep the lights on here in the hole. So let's thank those people right now, guys. All right. Black Eyed Cool Kids and up. Yes. If you're a member of the expansion, sign up for Black Eyed Cool Kid level, Black Eyed Cool Kid tier and up, you get your name right on the show. So here goes. Thank you, too. Audrey Gillis. Yes. Ooh, Audrey Gillis. Welcome to the hole. Phil, Phil Willis. I don't know. Okay. Settle down. It's been a while. Happy to have you. <laughs> yes. All the way from St. Petersburg, Damien Stelmar. Yes. Right. Yes. It's all for you, Damien. <laughs> yeah. It's all for yes. you. We're happy to have you here. Oh, you know what? Audrey was a dogman whisperer, I should have said. Thank you so much, Audrey. That's extra special. Oh. Lawrence Votu. Lawrence Votu. Yes. Welcome in. We vote for you, Lawrence Votu. Yes, we do. Yes. Glad to have you. Yeah. Gentry Bowman. <laughs> yes. Gentry Bowman. <laughs> Hello. That's a wonderful name. What gentleman. I a like man him. with a bow. I think she might be a gentle lady. 
Gentle woman. Female dogman whisperer, actually. All right. That. So thank you so much, Gentry. Awesome. Kingdom Hearts. Awesome to have you. Patricia Crew, welcome to the hole. Welcome to our crew. Welcome to the crew hole. Yes! The hole of the crew. <laughs> Get on your phone and call Molly Jones, because she's hanging out with us today. Yes. Here in the hole. What? Uh, Molly Jones. Why are you calling her? I just, it rhymes Welcome with Jones. Welcome in. Phones rhymes with Jones. Does it? Yes. Welcome to have you, Molly. <laughs> Travis Grieve is here. Ooh, I grieve. Yes. For our time without Travis. Thank you for joining. <laughs> yes. Welcome to be here, Travi. Awesome. Uh, and... Crystal Kozlak is here. Oh, awesome. Oh, special. Happy birthday, Happy Crystal. Birthday. Happy belated if it's gone. Yes. And cheers to Clark. Cheers to Clark for his lovely gift yes. to you of giving must the hole. Must be a real Superman. Thank you for both for being in the hole with us. Yes. Happy to have you. Happy birthday. Wyon Lu Jean Hendricks. Yes. Welcome. Yes. Or Gene Hendricks. Wyon Lu Jean Hendricks. That's a long one. I like that. <laughs> I hope I read that right. A little guitar riff there. Uh, super happy to have you in the hole, my friend. Natalie Rita. Yes! Welcome to the hole. Excellent. Two first names and yes. one. She, my friends, is a shadow person of interest. Ooh. Very special place in our hearts. My heart throbs for you, Natalie. That is very generous. We appreciate it. Throbs. Throbs. I don't know. That's, what, that's what hearts do. Sure. Pulse. When they're sick. Pulses as well. <laughs> they're sick. I've got heart throb, doctor. Cordero Barnes. Oh. Mysterious. I like that name. Sounds like a count. Cordero Jeans. Okay. Is that a brand? Corduroy. <laughs> okay, good, good connection. Uh, welcome. I'm just trying to reach for something. It's been so it's long. Hard. We're getting back into the flow here, season five. Uh, welcome, Cordy. We're glad to have you. Yes. Cordy. The name of the email. Chris O'Donnell. Oh, right. Back in oh, the wow. hole. Yes. Isn't, isn't that a famous oh, person? Oh, my. made this joke like last this? time. Every time we made this Maybe it joke. is this time. Maybe it's the Batman <laughs> Returns. Well, if he keeps coming back, I'm going to say the true. same thing. We're programmed. We're programmed. We're programmed to say the same thing. I think when we listen to the show back, side note, every time we say the same thing right before it actually, we said it in the past. It's so meta. Everybody's programmed. We are NPCs. I'm sorry to report. We are, pro- we are. programmed information. <laughs> There's no way out of it. Your life is predetermined. I'll have the stake. Anyway, Chris was a dogman whisperer, so thank you, Chris. You yes. are a hero of the whole. Love you, buddy. Yeah. Rebecca Haynes is here. Ooh. Come on down to the hole, Rebecca. Splash on in. What's the? It's her way. In the hole. That's hole. what I was thinking. It's her way. It's her way. Let We're, the expansion be your way. That's right. Jessica. Yes. Welcome to be here. Yes. Just Jessica. Jessica. Yesica. Jessica. Jessica. I didn't get a last name, but she is sweet to be here, and we love her very. A woman much. like Jessica, you don't need a last name. And if you haven't heard your name yet, your name is Jessica. Just apply this to yourself. <laughs> Welcome all Jessicas. No, no, no. But seriously, we thank you. No, no. Email starts with Zach. I hope that helps. We love you. We appreciate you. I've made a mess. Come to the hole and get a glance of chance. No. Chance Allen <laughs> so is in the hole with us. Yes. Take a chance in the hole. <laughs> Take a chance in the hole. Yes. Damn it, I wasn't going to sing. <laughs> Welcome to have you, Chance. Yes. Glad to have you. Yes. Uh, Emily McMinn is here, and I will say she is a freaking sky whale. Sky whale, right? Sky whale. Wow. At 50 smackers a month. You are injecting your love into our heart directly, and it means so much. You've been around for a long time with us, Emily. We appreciate you yes, so yes. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank special you. Skywell writers like you really keep us going, just like the music. What happened? Must run out? Oh, there we go. You didn't loop it very well. <laughs> Okay. All right. Uh, next on the list here is Anthony Pilcher. Yes. Ooh. Welcome to the whole Dogman Whisperer at that. He ain't no filter at Anthony Pilcher. He's a friend. Filcher? Yeah. He's not a filter? Yeah. What is that? I think filter, if you to filch, I think is like it's not good. <laughs> a liar. No, for sure. A thing. It's like a thief. 
Google it, audience, and tell us a thousand times later. Leave us a message. <laughs> Leave us a Anyways, comment. Anyways, thank you for being Dogman Whisperer. Yes. Anthony, you are a hero. Uh, Quinberly. Yes. That is yes. Awesome name. Wow. Yes. That is great. I remember Quinberly. Welcome to the hole. Like Quinberly? She's from Downton Abbey. No, she's not. <laughs> no, she could be. You're Bridgerton. Quimberly, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Dr. Quimberly, medicine woman from Down Under. I think it's a nickname, but it's an awesome name. I love it. That. Uh, Roland Campbell. All right. Crack open that can of soup. Yes. Yes. Heat it up on the stove because we are happy to eat with you, my friend. What? <laughs> <laughs> happy to have you over for dinner. Yes, yes. You know, Campbell's soup, mm. right? That's yeah. the thing. I was thinking Roland Dust Chain. Uh, oh, and out. you know, he was a shadow person of interest, so we'll have him over every week. All right. Yes. I'll drink with, eat soup with that man. Super. Every day. Super. Thank soup. you for supporting the show. That's that's very generous of you, shadow person of interest. Ben B is here, Dogman Whisperer. Ben B. <laughs> Chris was an angry dogman there. Uh, thank you for being here, Ben. You are awesome, Dogman. Yes. Ben is the man. Lori Brandon has arrived deep in the crevices of the hole. Lori Brandon? And we have Sounds dangerous. dug her up like a treasure. Thank you so much, Lori. You yes. are awesome for being here. Big hugs. Esha. Hello, Esha. Esha, just an historian. We just talked about we you. We did. We did some background talk. No, it was all bad talk. <laughs> In fact, like behind the show, it's behind, behind the scenes, scenes. we talked. We were talking about the misunderstanding you had with the patron and expansion, my f- which are the same yes, thing. I, for those who don't know, I made the membership is a little confusing. You can sign up at, at the expansion site or on Patreon. They give you the same content. We prefer the expansion site because it's our own content. We have the rights to it. We built it there. Plus, you get your own RSS, and you can access the season one archive, which isn't so easy on the on Patreon. So. Okay. Anyways, moving along. But thank you, Esha, for bringing that up. That is important, and we appreciate your patronage. Welcome in. Uh, Deranged Ginger is here. Ooh, look out. Ooh, fire. That's a little scary. She's fresh and spicy. (laughs) I hope you're not too deranged. Are you sure you know it's a her? Uh, Ginger? It's usually a girl's name. No. You know any men named Ginger? It could be a ginger like red I'm hair. I'm pretty sure it's a guy. Oh, that's true. Oh, wow. I'm pretty sure it's a Spencer, <laughs> potentially. That's in the oh. in, in the other details. Oh, I get it. So, I get it. Okay. Anyone with red hair can be a ginger, Chris. <laughs> well, ginger is also a, fem- a female's name. Oh, that's true. I didn't think about it that way. Oh, like you were thinking deranged name ginger. Yeah. Anyways, dera- deranged <laughs> red hair. That's a little weird. <laughs> that's why I said dangerous. Deranged, red, deranged ginger definitely sounds more like a... It's Red like macabre Karen. We're totally guessing he could be a cook that loves to use ginger. That's true. Anyways, thank you so much, Spencer. You are awesome. We appreciate your patronage, sincerely. We get sidetracked. We get sidetracked. And finally for today, our last belief hole, Black Eyed Cool Kid is Cullen yes, or yes, Cullen. Yes, 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 I don't know yes, how to pronounce yes, it. Yes, yes. Yes. That sounds Irish. Yes. Or Gaelic. Yeah. Cullen. I think it's Cullen. Anyways, cool. thank you so much for being here, Cullen. Thank you, Cullen. Or Cullen. Or Cullen. <laughs> We are bad pronunciators. Thank you so much for everyone who is here and supporting the show. Yes. You guys really yes. keep Yay! us going. Yay! If you haven't heard your name yet, don't fear. You will eventually. The belief hole is near. That's yes. right. We can't stop rhyming when we have the music playing. <laughs> Anywho, thank you so much, everybody. Yes. We're awesome. Hope you guys enjoyed this week's expansion episode. It's fantastic. It's available now. If you're not an expansion member, yeah. go sign up. Beliefhole.com. We'll see you at the expansion. If you're still here and you're not an expansion member, what are you doing? What are, what are, what are you doing with your life? Move on. Move, move to the move next along. level. <laughs> move on to the next level. Stay here until you can afford to move, move along to the next level. <laughs> Just kidding. We, we, pre- we appreciate way. everyone listening, sincerely. Yes. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. We love you. Uh, tune into the expansion. And uh, otherwise, we will see you Friday after next. All right. All right, guys. We'll on. see you next time. Belief hole. Belief hole. 
But instead of attacking, the humanoids burst into animalish guffles. Goofas. Goofas? What is that word? <laughs> Stumping me. What does that mean? What? Guffaws. Guffaws. I think that's laughter. Guffaws. I think it's laughter. Oh, that's one. Oh, that's oh, a trait oh, known oh. For, for the Yaren. <laughs> oh, Tim Allen's out there. After gently picking up the men as if they were no more than children's toys, 